you have your Bibles with you, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1051, Matthew chapter 22. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to Matthew chapter 22, and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject. God and government. I probably have your attention already, don't I? Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. And I want to encourage you this morning to keep your Bibles open. I have to lay a lot of groundwork and background in the passage to get to the meat and the point of it. And I'm going to constantly be pointing you back to the Bible and if you don't have your Bible open, you're probably going to get lost uh, really fast. So I encourage you to keep it open to Matthew 22. And we'll begin reading in verse 15. And this is what the Word of God says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Throughout church history, there have been numerous instances when God and government collided. None greater than the incident that took place in 1521, when Martin Luther was summoned to appear before Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the most powerful monarch in Europe. Luther had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church a few months prior. He was charged with heresy for his vocal opposition to theological error and religious corruption in the church. And if convicted, Luther would likely be sentenced to death. And so there he was asked if he would recount the alleged heresies in his books. And I quote his response. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason... I do not accept the authority of the Pope or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. It is here where he gave this testimony, that he gave the simple words that are often quoted by him. Here I stand. 
I can do no other. Government and God colliding. Instead of complying and falling in line, he boldly defied those in authority over him, including the emperor himself. And through his own words, we find that Luther's courage was grounded in conviction. And that conviction was anchored in his commitment to the supreme authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. Luther's conscience was bound to the word of God. He believed that its authority superseded that of popes, councils, and even emperors. And despite the possibility of incarceration or execution, Luther never wavered before the most powerful monarch of his day. He remained true to biblical convictions. He refused to violate his conscience. And he entrusted himself solely to the Lord. And friends, like Luther... You and I may find ourselves caught up in the collision between God and government. And in some ways, we have already experienced that through the pandemic and through its lockdowns and specifically for how that affected our own church family. And while none of us can say that we handled everything in that season perfectly, I think we could all agree that we learned many lessons and that we're better prepared and equipped to respond to the next collision between God and government. And make no mistake, friend, as our nation becomes more and more polarized and as the culture becomes more post and anti-Christian, there will be a next time. And it may be soon. In the text before us, Jesus addresses the issue Luther was confronted with and the issue that you and I are confronted with, the relationship between God and government and what to do when these relationships collide. The religious leaders, in response to Jesus' trilogy of judgment parables, tried to trap him by using a series of three confrontational questions. Jesus had exposed their wickedness and he had warned them that they were in danger of judgment. And these leaders were exposed and embarrassed and they wanted revenge at any cost. These men wanted to destroy Jesus and they hoped to trap him into saying something that would discredit him and lead to his arrest and ultimately his silence. And instead of taking Jesus' warnings to heart about impending judgment and asking him how they might avoid that judgment and experience God's mercy and grace, their only concern was to eliminate Jesus. And in this first question, Jesus explains to them the relationship between God and government. And we're going to outline this the way the text outlines it with two main points. So the first thing I want you to see is the question found in verses 15 to 17. And the Bible says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. 
And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now you'll notice that Matthew records in verse 15 that in response to Jesus' judgment parables, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they could entangle him in his words. Mark, in his gospel, in a parallel account, says that the chief priests and scribes and elders sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Luke, in his account, gives the most detailed description. And he says that the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him, listen, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. All three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, paint the same picture. That as Jesus continued to teach the crowds in the court of the Gentiles, the Pharisees gathered privately in another area of the temple to plan their next move and their attack on Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that they were still afraid to take action against Jesus directly. And so they planned a clever trap to entrap him and entangle him in his words, causing him to make a statement against Rome that would ensure his arrest and his execution as an insurrectionist. That way, they would never have to deal with Jesus again and their hands would be completely clean of his demise. You'll notice in verse 16... Matthew notes that instead of confronting Jesus themselves, this is how bold they were, the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees must have assumed that Jesus would not have recognized their disciples and that they could have disguised themselves and blended in with the crowd as regular citizens who along with the Herodians were simply looking to Jesus to answer their question and clear up their confusion. It's also important to note that this is Matthew's only reference to the Herodians in all of his gospel. And the reason for that is not much is known about them except for what can be inferred from their name. The Herodians were not domestic servants or officers of Herod and Tippus, but they were influential people whose outlook was friendly to the Herodian rule and consequently to the Roman rule upon which it rested. And they were politically aligned, this is important, with the Sadducees who were the arch enemies of the Pharisees. And this group had disdain for Jesus. And some think and believe that Herod Antipas sent them uh, on his own accord to instigate Jesus so he could be imprisoned and ultimately be put to death. But notice what the text says. Arch enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who violently disagreed about religion and politics and everything in between, agreed on one thing, their hatred of Jesus. And it's a reminder, friends, that conflict produces unusual and often evil 
alliances in the face of a common enemy. And this is exactly what is taking place in these verses. So the picture that Matthew gives us is that of the older Pharisees sending their disciples along with the Herodians to do their dirty work and entangle Jesus in his words with their premeditated questions. So in verse 16, you'll notice this unholy alliance approaches Jesus and look at how they approach him with flattery, initiating their trap by saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. This is what Spurgeon said about their flattery and, their, and flattery in general. He said, let us take note that when evil men are very loud in their praises of us, they usually have some wicked design against us. They fawn and flatter that they may deceive and destroy. And that's exactly what is happening in this text. They are flattering Jesus so they can deceive him and destroy him. And notice in verse 16 what they say. They call him teacher. To address a man as teacher was a high form of honor. It was reserved for rabbis who had distinguished themselves as astute students and interpreters of the Jewish law and tradition. And so they're paying him a high compliment. You'll notice additionally the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians praised Jesus for his personal and doctrinal integrity by declaring that he was true. He was a man of truth and that he taught the way of God truthfully. In other words, Jesus, we're so impressed by you. You're a man of God and you teach the truth of God truthfully. We stand in all of you. You are the master teacher. Furthermore, you'll notice in this verse, Jesus' enemies declare that he did not defer to or become swayed by threats or opposition. That he was known for standing his ground with courage and conviction. And friends, every single thing that they said about Jesus in this verse was absolutely true. Even though they didn't believe one word of what they said to him. Mark Deaver in his book, God and Politics, says this about this encounter. Consider for a moment the dark irony of their mission. Lying about the truth to the one who was the truth. Sinning against the Holy One who made them in His image to bear His holy image. Seeking to kill the one who would be their only hope eternally. Lying to the truth. Ignoring the way. Seeking to kill the life. Seeking to entangle and trap Jesus. Now you'll notice in the text, thinking that their flattery had softened Jesus up and had lowered his defenses, in verse 17, they ask the question, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And when they asked the question saying, is it lawful, they were literally asking, is it permissible for the people of God to pay allegiance to a pagan ruler by paying 
this tax? And the fact that this question was jointly asked by both Pharisees and Herodians is greatly significant because these two groups stood in opposition on this issue of tax. The Pharisees were the Orthodox believers and they believed in the prime allegiance of Israel to God. And strictly speaking, they believed the emperor who demanded tribute and taxes from the Jews should be viewed as a blasphemer because they recognized only one master, God. And so they stood as Pharisees in opposition to the whole idea of this Roman tax. But the Herodians, they were the party of Herod, the puppet of the Galilee, who owed his position and his power to the Romans and who worked in unison with the Romans. And so the Herodians were all in on this tax. They thought it was a grand idea and they willingly bowed to Caesar. And so you see the position that they've put Jesus in, don't you, friends? Depending on how he answers the question, he'll find himself in opposition with the Pharisees. Or if he answers the other way, he'll find himself in opposition with the Herodians. And he'll either be in trouble with Rome or he'll be in trouble with the Jews. Now the tax that they're referring to is often referred to as the poll tax. It's from where we get our English word census. And through this tax, the Romans kept track of the population of their empire and they funded the troops that occupied Jerusalem. This tax is also referred to as the head tax because it required that every adult male pay this tax. And what you need to understand in the background to fully understand Jesus's answer is that of the many taxes enacted by the Romans, none of them was more hated by the Jews than this one. Every single denarius that was given for this tax was a sign of their subjugation to Roman rule. And every single coin proclaimed that Caesar was Lord and that he was God. And so every time a Jew paid this tax, they felt as if they were committing idolatry and worshiping a graven image. They hated this tax. They hated it so much that in A.D. 6, there was an insurrection in Galilee, and the people cried out because God was their only God and Lord. They would not pay the tax, and Rome crushed the insurrection, only to find 60 years later in A.D. 66, another insurrection would arise surrounding this tax. And once again, Rome would destroy the rebellion. And so here they are, the Pharisees and the Herodians, thinking that if Jesus said it was right to pay taxes... They could discredit him with the people who hated Rome and for whom these taxes were a great burden. He would, he would lose all of his popular support. He would be dismissed as an insurrectionist and collaborator. He might even be refused as the Messiah and be driven out. 
On the other hand, if Jesus said they should resist Rome by refusing to pay taxes, then his enemies could denounce him to the authorities as a danger to their rule. Do you see it? Revolution against Rome or collaboration with Rome? These were Jesus' choices. The bottom line is simply this. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not interested in a real answer to their question. Their intent was to trap Jesus. And so we see the question. Now secondly, let's see the answer in verses 18 to 21. But Jesus... Aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now notice in verse 18 that Jesus immediately perceived their scheme. And Matthew says in this verse that he was aware of their malicious intent. Jesus knew at the outset that their true motive was not to get an answer to a question, but to trap him. And so, look at what he does. Before answering their question in verse 18, Jesus asks a question of his own. Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? And the word hypocrites that he uses refers to actors in the theater who would play a part by putting on a mask. And Jesus at the outset of this interaction says, you are a bunch of actors in a play. You're wearing your mask. I know your wicked scheme. I know the thoughts and intentions of your heart. I know your malice. I know your purpose behind your flattery and your words. And I'm declaring to you that you are fake. You are a bunch of hypocrites. It's a reminder, friends, that no one, no one can fool God. He sees you exactly where you are in the condition of your heart and soul before him. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And then in verse 19, Jesus said to them, show me the coin for the tax. And Matthew says, they brought him a denarius. It's interesting, isn't it? The Pharisees were in this group. The ones who hated the denarius. The ones who hated the tax. And Jesus says, bring me a coin. And guess who had a coin? The Pharisees. Now this denarius was the specific coin that was used for the poll tax. It amounted to a daily wage for a soldier or common laborer. It was a silver coin minted expressly by the emperor. And on one side it bore the picture and the likeness of the emperor engraved on it. And on the other side an inscription and designation of who the emperor was and how he should be viewed as God and should be worshipped. And because of the way this coin was minted, the Jews hated it. It was offensive to them. And notice what happens in verse 20. After receiving the coin, Jesus asks the question, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And thinking that Jesus was about to step right into their trap. Notice what they said in verse 21. 
It's Caesar's. And because Jesus had claimed deity, calling himself God's son, the disciples of the Pharisees confidently expected Jesus to denounce the coin and the tax as a false god. And so, instead, Jesus says to them, look, verse 21, here is the point of the text. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This, friends, is the point of the text. This is a profound statement. And this statement, I would submit to you, is often overlooked and is not carefully meditated upon. In this simple but powerful statement, Jesus teaches us two things. He teaches us that as Christians, we have a responsibility to government. And as Christians, we have a responsibility to God. So you ask, what is our responsibility to government? Great question. And it's simple. As Christians, our responsibility to the government is to be good citizens. We are, as Jesus says, to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And when Jesus says that, what does he mean? Well, the word render means to pay or to give back, and it implies a debt. It carries the idea of an obligation and responsibility. An obligation and responsibility, listen carefully, that is not optional. The language is not optional. You could view it, if you will, as a command. As Christians, we are to be good citizens to the government. And we are to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And so Jesus' answer to the original question in verse 17, is it lawful and right to pay the tax to Caesar, is simply yes. Yes, it is lawful to pay that tax. Yes, it is good and right to pay that tax. And with his answer, Jesus is declaring the divinely ordained obligation of citizens to pay taxes to whichever government is in authority over them. Now, you may not like that. I may not like that. I can tell by your disposition this morning that you're already struggling with what I'm saying, and I haven't even told you the hard stuff yet. We may not like it, but look for yourself, friends. You're reasonable people. You have the Bible open in your lap. You're reading the same words that I'm reading. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you and gives you discernment to understand what you're reading. Is it really vague? Or is it clear? It's clear. We just don't like it. And so Jesus made no qualifying exemptions in this statement. No exceptions, even under rulers such as blasphemous, pagan, and idolatrous as the ones of his day who would eventually nail him to a cross. 
the government that would execute the Son of God should receive taxes from the people of God. That's what Jesus said. Just let that simmer for a moment. So how are we to think of this? Well, you have to have a biblical theology of government. And I can't give you all of that in these few moments this morning. I will wear you out and extend lunch and you'll be late for McDonald's. So we can't do that. But I can give you some simple principles that will help you think about what the Bible says in totality about Jesus' statement. Because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so the Bible teaches, friends, that God is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over everything, even government. And the Bible teaches that government is God's servant because government, all of it, is instituted by God. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person. For there is no authority except from God. Did you hear that? All authority originates with God. There is no authority in the world apart from God. And listen. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now again, I'll say to you, you're reasonable people. What does that text mean? It means that every single government in the world, good, bad, and indifferent, has authority from God because God is the only one that has authority and every government is instituted by God. Good, bad, or indifferent. They all belong to Him. All government. Not only has authority from God, listen carefully, has power only as God gives it authority. And we see this clearly in John chapter 19 and verse 11 when Jesus is talking to Pilate before Pilate sentences his death. And Jesus answered him, and listen to what Jesus said You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. How could Pilate do what he did to Jesus? Because God the Father who was sovereign over Pilate gave him the authority to do it. All authority in government comes from God. Because it's all instituted by God. And this means, friends, that even a pagan, ungodly, oppressive government is a legitimate one because it doesn't exist apart from God's sovereignty if you believe Romans 13. He goes on in Romans 13 in verses 5 to 7 and he says this, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. Listen, if you think you got heartburn now, you wait till this next statement. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
They are God's servants. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Even if you don't like the government. Do it anyway. Why? Because God's sovereign over the government. God instituted the government. God gave the government its authority. It wouldn't exist. It wouldn't have authority apart from God himself. And the question is, do you believe it or not? Do you believe the word of God or not? Because that's the theology of government. I found Mark Deaver to be very helpful on this point as I wrestled in my study with these principles. And in his book, God and Politics, he says, even when governments support immorality and sin, as every government since the fall has done in one way or another, we are at least normally to continue to support it as we correct and improve it. We should be very slow to conclude that even when a particular sin is propagated, that this removes the rightful authority of the government. It's true, friends. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that God in his sovereignty raises and lowers kings. And the government that you're so opposed to, how do you not know that it is God's will that he raised it up for this very time to fulfill his purpose, to fulfill his will, and to fulfill his judgment? You don't know that. You can't say that. The Bible also teaches that the purpose of all government should be to bless those within the scope of its authority. It has authority from God. It's instituted by God. God is sovereign over the government. And he designed the government to be a blessing to the people. And we see this in King David's final words before his death in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is God's intent for government, that it is to be like the morning light dawning a new day, like the sun bursting forth with clouds of gladness and joy. Government is to be a blessing to the people. Because according to the word of God, the government does good by maintaining civil order and peace. By providing a stage for us to obey God and worship him and serve him. This is how Peter describes this purpose of government. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Sent by him to do what? Listen, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. It's the will of God that governments bring order to society. It's the will of God that governments restrain evil and highlight the good. And this, friends is why as Christians, the Bible teaches that we should faithfully pray for those who are in authority over us. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. 
godly and dignified in every way. Why should we pray for them? Paul tells Timothy, you pray for them so that we can lead a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. So that we could obey God and live for God and raise our families for God and gather as a church and worship God. This is why we pray for our government. This is why we pray for our leaders. And this is what Paul says at the end. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God. It is a good thing when we as Christians pray for the government. It is a pleasing thing to God when he sees his people praying for the government. And here's the reality, friends. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this morning, but here's the true reality of the matter. I would suspect that the majority of us in this room complain and criticize and talk bad about the government more than we ever bow our head and bend our knee in prayer for the government. The Bible says that it is God's will that as Christians, we pray for our leaders. No, we didn't vote for them, so we're not going to pray for them. We don't agree with their politics, so we're not going to pray for them. We're going to be hermits. We're going to be monasticists. We're just going to withdraw. And do you know that that is anti-Bible? That... The people of God were in exile in Babylon, one of the most corrupt pagan governments that's ever existed in the history of the world. And do you know what God said to his people through his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 7? Build houses and live in them. Where? In Babylon. Build your house and live in it. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, that should be attractive to some of you. I... I, we, we have experienced the blessing of your produce this summer. So we, you plant the garden. Why? Because it's a good thing. And it gives a testimony to the goodness and the grace of God in the corrupt and foreign land. So you build your house and you plant your garden and you eat the produce of the garden. Listen, and you take wives and you have sons and daughters. You get married. You build a home. You raise children even in a pagan culture. And you multiply there. And listen, listen to the exclamation point. And you do not decrease. You don't run away and hide. You live for God in a pagan land. You build your home and you build your family. And you raise godly warriors and arrows so, as the psalmist says, you can put them in your bow and release them into the world for the glory of God. You don't retreat back. You don't complain and bemoan the state. You try to be a difference maker with what God has entrusted to you. That's what he's saying. And then he says, and seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for its for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Don't you see? You're directly related to what happens in the culture. So you pray. You obey. And you be good citizens. As Christians, because... We recognize the authority of God. We should also recognize the authority that God has given the government. And as a result, we should be the best citizens. 
there shouldn't be any finer citizens in Wheeling, St. Clairsville, Belmont, Pennsylvania, Moundsville, than the people in this room. We should obey the government in all areas of legitimate authority. We should not leave this place and break the speed limit. We should honestly pay our taxes and not cheat. We should vote in elections. We should support worthy endeavors in the community. We should speak well of our leaders and pray for them. Now, can I just be clear with you this morning as if I haven't already? This is not my opinion. Don't leave this place to saying, oh, I disagree with the pastor. Did you hear his opinion about politics and all that stuff? You haven't heard my opinion about one thing. You've heard God's opinion. And so I'll just tell you like it is, friends. Your problem's not with me and what you've heard this morning. Your problem's with God. So go get your Bible open and wrestle with him. This principle of government that Jesus is establishing is ordained by God no matter who's in office. No matter who's in office and whether or not you voted for him. You act like it doesn't count because you didn't vote for him. Show me a verse of scripture that says that. As if you're the all-wise and knowing person. You got more wisdom than God? No. No, I'm going to submit to you, friends, the reason why you're struggling with some of this is because you're worshiping something that you were never meant to worship. You render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And if Jesus told the Jews to give it to him, the very ones who were going to take his life, do you think you get an escape clause? Because you didn't vote? No. So Jesus says, you have a responsibility to government. Look at the language of the text. Whose likeness and image is on the coin? Caesar's. Well, it belongs to Caesar. So give Caesar what belongs to him. Give it back to him. Now look at verse 21. Jesus went on to say unto God the things that are God's. So with this statement, Jesus is clearly distinguishing between Caesar and God. And he is emphasizing that our responsibility, you need to listen because you struggled so much in what I just said. You need to hear what I'm about to say because it will help you. He is distinguishing a difference between our responsibility to government and our responsibility to God. So yes, as good citizens, we are to obey the government. But listen, the government is not God. The government is a servant of God. That means that we should obey the government, but we should never worship the government. No matter who the leader is. No matter who the leader is. When Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, this is what he is saying, friends. He is saying that earthly authority is limited. And earthly authority is not the ultimate power. He is saying that our ultimate and comprehensive accountability is to God. 
So you render to God the things that are God's. And so it begs the question then, what belongs to God? Simple answer. Everything. Everything belongs to God. There is nothing that exists that does not exist apart from God's creative power. God is the creator and owner of everything. God is sovereign over everything. And so therefore, everything belongs to God. Jesus, or Paul asked the question this way to the Corinthians. What do you have, Corinthians, that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Your life, your breath. Everything about you, everything that you are, it all traces back to the sovereign hand of God. And I know what some of you are saying right now. Well, that's not true, Pastor. I've worked hard all my life. I've built uh, my estate. I've built my home. Some of us say, I built it with my own two hands. I've done this. I've done that. I've done that. It's all by me. Where do you think you got the wisdom to do what you did? Where do you think you got the energy to do it? Where do you think you got the skill to do it? No, friends, it all traces back to God. Apart from God, you have nothing, and apart from God, you are nothing. That's why every single one of us in this room needs God. And many of us are acting like we can make it our own way and do our own thing and get by on our own, and somehow in the end, it will all work out. But Jesus says clearly with this statement, I want you to hear it, don't miss it. Everything you are, everything you have, everything about you, it belongs to God and you need Him. We owe everything to Him. And this should drive us to Him in humility and dependence. It should help us see how our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion has separated us from the God who created us and has given us life and breath and everything. And how He's given us His Son so that we could experience the forgiveness of our sins and be reconciled to Him and have a right relationship with Him. And it should drive us to Him in dependence. Confessing our sin, confessing our need for Him, trusting in Him for our salvation and for our eternity. Because eternity is long, friends, and you don't want to be wrong about your destination. And so Jesus says, pay your taxes, but trust in me. Trust in the one who can reconcile you to your creator. Trust in the one who's about to die for you. Pay your taxes to the government, but don't trust in the government. Trust in me. The fact that we should give to God what is God's means that we should also do a look look to include God in every area of our life. As Christians, we shouldn't compartmentalize our lives. Every area of our life belongs to God. Our marriage, our parenting, our work, our holiness, all of it. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3.17 that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Every area of your life, every hour of your life, should be offered to God as a part of your worship to Him. If you're a lawyer, you should be the best lawyer you can be for your client and for the glory of God and for the good of the community. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you should yield all of the skills, all of the knowledge, all of the abilities that God has given you. 
and that you've learned. And you should yield all of that to God's glory, to be a blessing to other people and to help other people and to make a difference in people's lives. If you're a coal miner, you should mine the best coal you can. And you should do it with a good attitude when the days are long and hard and you're dealing with all kinds of difficult, carnal, pagan people. You should be different. And you should mine coal differently for the glory of God. You should offer all that you have in your coal mining to God. If you're a banker, you should make the best spreadsheet and balance statement that the bank has ever seen. You should count out cash like nobody's business. You should do it all for the glory of God. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you should change those diapers and wash those spit-up clothes that stink so bad to the glory of God. And thank God for every dirty diaper, every soiled shirt, every soiled bed sheet. Because it's evidence of His goodness and grace to you in your life for His glory. All of your life. If you're a construction worker, you should make the best plumb line, the best wall, the best foundation that's ever been constructed for the glory of God. It means, husbands, that the way you use your authority in your wife's life and in your home is meant to reflect God's authority, not yours. Don't be such a hard man. Do you think God's hard like that with his people? Don't be such a difficult man. Make it a blessing to live with you. Make it a joy for your wife when she hears you come through the door. Don't make it a burden. You're misusing your authority. It's not yours to begin with anyway. It belongs to God. Who do you think you are? It's God's authority, not yours. And parents, when you use your authority in your children's lives, you're teaching them and modeling them how God deals with us and his discipline and correction of us. And this is what it means to give back to God what is God's. All of these things belong to him. They're not yours. They're God's. Here's what Jesus was saying, friends. Don't miss it. You bear the image of God because I created you. My fingerprints are all over you. Therefore, give your life, the entirety of your life, the whole of your life back to me. Every part of you, your adoration, your allegiance, your treasures, your talents, your body and your soul, your mind and your spirit, all of it belongs to God. So give every single part of you back to Him. That's what Jesus is saying. Go pay your taxes. Don't break the speed limit. And worship me with everything you got. And here's the reality, friends. As this world becomes more and more post-Christian, no earthly kingdom is ever going to perfectly reflect the nature and character of God. I don't care who's in office. You're deceiving yourselves if you think a different vote makes a difference in the post-Christian culture. Government is corrupted by sin, and it can only do so much. That's why in Exodus 5.2, we find help here. This is Pharaoh dealing with God's people. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Did you hear what he said? I don't even know the Lord. Why should I listen to him? This is the kind of culture we're living in where leaders are rising up who don't even know who the Lord is. 
and you expect them to make Christian decisions. No, that's why you pray for them, you see? It's why you use the biblical principles. And so it's a reminder that government authority is not always used for good in our fallen world. Therefore, you're waiting for the punchlines, aren't you? I'm just about finished so you can quit being uncomfortable and leave. We should not. Are you listening? There is a therefore. Therefore, we should not obey the government if the government tells us to do something that God has told us not to do. We should not obey the government if the government tells us to do something that God has told us not to do. We are never to give to the government what belongs to God. And the apostles help us with this in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The leading authorities came to them and they said, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Their directive from the government, stop preaching Jesus. What did Peter and the apostles say? We can't obey you in that. We will preach. It's the example of what I'm talking about. Let me give you a couple practical applications. When the government tells you that it is illegal to discipline your children or instruct them in the dangers of transgender and homosexual ideology, but it is perfectly legal to murder babies, as a Christian, you cannot obey. You can't do it. When the government tells you that it is illegal to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a hate crime. As a Christian, you cannot obey. And when the government tells you that you cannot worship God, as a Christian, you cannot obey. And friends, it may cost you something. It cost the early Christians their lives. And like, we're the only generation that thinks, oh, we can be a Christian, it's going to be acceptable, and we're never going to go to jail, and we're never going to suffer, and we're never going to be persecuted, and we may never have our life taken from us, or our family taken from us, or our kids taken from us. Like, what rock are you under? It is the history of God's people throughout the world. We're the only generation that thinks we're going to be immune to it all somehow. And so the principle is no one can command what God has forbidden. And no one can forbid what God has commanded. You can't do it. Don't care who you are. And this is Jesus' point to the whole answer. Now notice in verse 22. Upon hearing Jesus' response, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians were utterly astonished at his wisdom. Can't you picture the scene? Can't you picture it? Can't you see him? Oh, I thought we had him. Nope. Amazed at his wisdom. Speechless with his answer. And marveled and went away. Do you marvel at Jesus like that? Even unbelievers marveled 
with Jesus. Well, listen carefully to my conclusion. God's provisions and promises for us in Christ give us the grace to respect government and to be good citizens, and to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. God gives us the grace to do that. While at the same time giving us the courage to wake up every day and follow Jesus and to render to God the things that are God's. And all the while, friends, if you're a Christian, you long for the day when God and government will no longer collide. Because we will thrive under the perfect rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about Caesar again. So until that day, remember that you were made in the image of God. And give all of yourself wholeheartedly to him. And listen to your pastor. If you do that. You'll never regret it. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word today. Even when it touches on things that are uncomfortable to us and that we don't want to hear. We must and will pause and give you thanks. For your word. It is true. And it is our desire God. To build this church on your word. To build our lives on your word. To build our marriages on your word. To build our homes on your word. And to be difference makers. In all that you've entrusted to us God. And so by your grace. Help us in these weighty matters to be the kind of people that you have called us to be and to do the things that you've called us to do until you take us home. We rest and trust in your goodness and your grace today and your wisdom and knowing what's best for all of us. And we thank you, God, that we don't pray to a God who is taken back by things that happen that you are the sovereign ruler over the universe and everything is in your hands. And so we rest in you and trust in you for all things today. And pray that you would build your church and your people and draw those who don't know you to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.